0: Good morning, Weymouth, good morning, welcome. Welcome, thank you once again for, uh, for being with us, for, for joining us in person, online, for worship this morning. My name's Chris, I'm the pastor here, if I haven't had a chance to, to meet you yet, I'd love to talk with you. Uh, if you're newer to the church, there's a little code on the front of the bulletin you can grab at the welcome table, scan it, fill out a QR code, fill out a connect card, and uh, we can uh, get you connected, get you some more information about the church, but we're really glad you're here. Uh, as we get started this morning in worship, it's our pattern to just take a few moments in silence, uh, just in the quiet of our own hearts, to, to pray, uh, to pray. Uh, that's the proper grammar there, to pray and and prepare our hearts for worship. So, uh, please bow and pray with me. The psalmist writes, "Praise the Lord." I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And Lord, we praise you this morning for your uh, enduring righteousness, for your, your great works, and uh, ultimately for the work that you have done in, in, in the person and work of your Son, our Savior. Lord, so help us this morning to praise you in response, to praise you uh, for who you are, for how you have worked in Christ, in our world, in our hearts. And Lord, help us to praise you as one congregation, as one people this morning in Christ, in his name, amen. Amen. Well, you might see we, uh, we have a few, face, a few new faces up here. Uh, we, AJ, I don't know if you knew this, he's part of a traveling band. Um, so, so we invited some of his friends. I don't know if you guys have a name yet. Right? No? We won't say the name. We came with a name this week, but we're not going to talk about it. Um, uh, but they're gonna, they've graciously come to, to lead us in worship this morning, so they'll, they'll kick us off, and I invite you to stand and sing with us.
1: its technical difficulties, we can still sing of our Lord's power to save.
0: As we continue along, just a few uh, announcements to make you aware of here in in the life of our church uh, this week and beyond. Um, Tonight we'll be uh, gathering together again at 6.30 here in this room uh, for just a night of Q&A. We're just calling it the Weymouth Q&A. This is just going to be a time from 6.30 to 8, 8 8.30, however long we need um, to spend some time together uh, going through different questions that people might have, questions about God, about the Bible, about theology, culture. Uh, whatever might come to mind. Some people have already submitted questions online. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, if you'd like to submit a question ahead of time, you can go to our website, weymouthchurch.com, go to the events tab, and find a way to submit questions that way, or we put out a, a QR code on the welcome table that you can scan to, to submit questions digitally. Uh, we'll have some time tonight answering those questions, and we'll also have some time uh, to, to answer any questions that might be uh, just shared in the room at that time. So we'll have some, some light refreshments, um, some desserts, some some different things tonight as well. So that'll be here in this room at 6.30 tonight. And our hope is that that's an opportunity for you to invite friends, neighbors, people who might be skeptical, people who might be uh, struggling, might have questions and, can, and thoughts and, and things that they've always wondered about the Bible. And we want to give space for people to to ask those questions to charitably discuss them together. So we'll be here together tonight at 6.30 and then Uh, Next Sunday, we have a new members class after the uh, worship service. So if you're interested in that, you can register ahead of time online or you can just show up. Uh, We'll be in the adult Sunday school room after the service next week. Uh, So with that in mind, we'll uh, move into a time of prayer here together. And uh, as we pray, we want to keep in mind uh, local ministries, global ministries, like-minded churches that we've been praying for. Uh, This morning, we're going to be praying for a church called Wingfoot Church. Uh, which is a church plant in Akron in Goodyear Heights. A good friend of mine, John, is the pastor there. I had, John, I had lunch with John this week and, and it just brought them to mind and they're there the ministry God is doing there in Goodyear Heights. So we'll be praying for Wingfoot this morning. We're also going to be praying for uh, number 13 on the World Watch list of uh, most dangerous countries in which to be a Christian. And that country is, uh, the, is Saudi Arabia. So this morning we'll be praying for the church in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so please bow and pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you this morning that you uh, you do have this power to save, that in, in your son you have uh, given us a security, you've given us a salvation, you've given us a life both individually and together that uh, cannot be taken away, that cannot be touched by, uh, by, by death or sin or failure or despair. And Lord, as we think through the, the places we've been this week, as we think in our hearts of the struggles we're facing, the doubts we have, the, the hardships we're enduring. Lord, help us to give that all up to you, to look to you in hope with knowing the security, the salvation we have in Christ, trusting in your power in the salvation you have already purchased for us in your Son. So Lord, help us to lift those things up to you, to lift up any distractions we have this morning that might impede our worship of you. Lord, help us to turn away from any hardness in our hearts, any sins, any idols we are are clinging to this morning help us to lay all of them down at your feet as we worship as we praise as we sit under your word and lord unite us together to fear your name to praise your name in, in awe and wonder at your power to save in christ And we thank you that we don't do this alone we thank you that we do this in partnership with other churches other believers in your kingdom And so we lift them up to you this morning, we lift up Wingfoot and Goodyear Heights and and John and Kelly and their their elders and ministry teams and the things they're doing there as that church continues to grow and and serve that community. Please uh, bless the preaching of your word there this morning, bless their praise, bless their service together this week and beyond. Use them to bring more people into your kingdom and to lead more people to saving faith in Christ. And we lift up the church in Saudi Arabia this morning in a place where uh, it's even illegal to have church buildings where so many believers hold to their faith in secret but are seeking ways to boldly uh, make disciples and share the gospel with others, strengthen them. This morning we pray, encourage them, help them to find ways to worship, to gather, to, to serve and encourage one another, to, to love their neighbors, to point people to you. Lord, grow the gospel in that country. Grow that church for your glory, in a way that leads all of us to praise uh, and proclaim uh, your might and your power, your wonderful works, your enduring righteousness, your eternal salvation, Lord. So help us to praise you and serve you in response to all that you are and all that you've done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, now I want to invite the the kids to come on up to the front before we uh, send you out to children's church. We're going to uh, spend a little bit of time in the catechism this week. We are on catechism question number 42. We're getting close. We have about 13 weeks left here, so 13 questions left. Good morning. Nice. All right. I feel outnumbered here today for some reason. Is that weird? Good to see you guys once again. Is everybody having a good September? Things going good? Are you enjoying the fall weather? Yes. Sometimes it's really hot. Sometimes you got to wear sweaters and stuff. It's a little weird. Yeah. Well, we have another question this week in our catechism. Does anybody remember what a catechism is?
2: A series of questions in about
0: our faith. There you go. It's like automatic at this point. Just, yeah, just, I should just have you leave this time going forward. Yeah, so it's a series of questions and answers that summarize what the Bible teaches us, what we believe as Christians. And so uh, we spent a while on question 41, which was the Lord's Prayer. We finally made it to question 42. Uh, so we're going to read that now here on the screen. We've been talking about prayer, and today we're starting to talk about the, the Word of God, the Bible, how we read it, why we read it. And so our question this morning is this. How is the Word of God to be read? and heard and the answer is with diligence preparation and prayer so that we may accept it with faith and practice it in our lives So my question for you guys this morning is how many of you guys have either played on a like sports team or have played like play like a musical instrument yeah what do you guys do do you play sport play an instrument
2: uh, I do the piano,
0: piano? Soccer. soccer right so let's say so, when you're, playing, when you're playing piano, when you're playing soccer, you only have to, like, play when you're doing a game or when you're doing a recital, right? You don't play any other time, right? That's how it works? No. No? What, what do you mean no? You have to practice. Oh, you have to practice. See, that was, that's why I was bad at the trombone. I always forgot to practice. Um, <laughs> that tells you a lot about me, too, right there, that I played trombone but also never practiced. Um, right? Yeah, that's right. You have to, you have to practice if you're going to be good. Uh, You know, playing piano, good at playing soccer, playing sports, playing an instrument. Like, you want to, to be diligent. That's what that word diligence means. To do something diligently is you do it over and over again, faithfully. You repeat it. You practice it. You grow in it. And when we read the Bible, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And so it's not just something we want to wait until Sunday morning and some weird guy like me talks to you about the Bible or uh, you you wait for somebody else to, to teach it to you. We can also read it ourselves. We can read it diligently every day again and again, over and over again. Because the Bible is not just a book with some facts for us to learn and memorize. The Bible is revelation from God. It's how God reveals himself, shows us who he is. And, and by reading it over and over, reading it diligently, reading it prayerfully, expectantly, waiting for God to show us something, we can learn more who he is. We can grow in our relationship with him. And so just like you practice the piano diligently, just like you practice soccer diligently and other things, God's word is something we can engage in with practice, with diligence. We can read more and more and more. And the more we do it, the more we'll get from it. The more we'll grow in his word We'll grow in our relationship with him. So we read it diligently, we also read it prayerfully, we ask for his help as we read it, and then we read it not just to gain information, but we read it to actually do something with it. What would happen if you practice piano or practice soccer, but then when it's time to play the game or time to play the recital, you, got, you didn't go out into the field or you didn't go out onto the stage. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. Yeah. Bad, right? Yeah, you put all this time into studying, you put all this time into practicing and playing, And then you don't get to actually play the game? You don't get to actually do the recital? Like, what was the point of all that practicing, all that diligent, uh, you know, recital, or practicing time, rehearsal time? What was the point of it? The point of it was to go and play and be ready for the recital, be ready for the game. In the same way, when we read God's Word, we're not just reading it to gain information. We're reading it to get out into the game, to, to live it out, to share it with other people, to obey God's commands, Right? And so God's Word, it's, it's meant to do more than give us information. It's meant to shape us, to form us like a potter shapes clay, to make us into who God meant us to be in Christ, to lead us to faith in Christ, but then to help us learn how to live in obedience to Christ, to live for him, to get into the game with him. Does that make sense? And so when we come to God's Word, it's important to read it diligently, to read it again and again, to, to engage with it, to practice it, to spend a lot of time in it as much as we can. And then we read it to, to grow, to learn, to live it out. And we do all that prayerfully. We do all that asking for God's help, not for our own help. That's important to know now when you're kids, and it's important to know when you're an adult. It's, all of our lives are meant to be spent reading diligently, prayerfully, preparing, taking time to learn how to read it together. Sound, sound good? So we do that together as a church. We do that in our families. We do that individually. And if you ever need help with that, if you ever have questions, know that I'd love to talk more with you about how to read the Bible, what that looks like. You can talk with your parents, you can ask them about the Bible and and how they read it or whether or not they read it. That could lead to some fun conversations, right? Um, So this is what we are meant to do together as God's people, is to read his word diligently, prayerfully, uh, productively together. So let's pray and ask God for his help to do that now. God, we thank you for, uh, you for giving us your word, for being God who has revealed himself to us, for showing us the way that we can know you through faith in christ so as you come to your word whether it's on sunday mornings whether it's with our families at home whether it's uh, individually help us to read your word diligently uh, prayerfully help us to prepare to read it to be expectant uh, to, to look for ways that you are speaking to us and help us to live it out help us to to get into the game to put into practice the things we are learning in your word lord Help us to be a church family that's centered on your word, that sits under the authority of your word, that shares your word with other people, Lord, so that we can grow in Christ, but also so that we can help other people grow in Christ and come to know him even for the first time, Lord. So help us, we pray, in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, you guys are going to go with uh, line up behind Mr. Namath. who's going to lead you to Children's Church. And then uh, the rest of us will stand, and we'll sing another song together. So please stand and sing with us.
1: All right, so um, if you were here last week, you will recognize this song we taught you last week. Um, this is a, a really good song as we're starting to approach the part of Mark's gospel that talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, um, that pairs really well with that, with that story. Um, and so might be familiar to some of you. Um, if you were not here last week, just follow along as best you can. but above all else, as you're singing, um, really think about the lyrics that we're singing and, and the story that that tells. and um, yeah. back. thank you that uh, that you have saved us. Lord, we thank you that um, through our trials and tribulations that you have um, sent your son um, to redeem us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for um, his death and for his resurrection and, and um, the salvation that we have in that. Lord, we thank you for the security that we have in that as well. Lord, I pray as Pastor Chris comes to deliver your word to us that we would uh, that we would be thoughtful in consideration of, of his words and, and of what you have to teach us. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, Thank you guys for, for leading us this morning. And uh, I really appreciate that song because like AJ said, it does uh, give us a chance to, to focus and, and meditate in on, on where we are in the book of Mark. Uh, we've been going through Mark's gospel together. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, turn to the book of Mark. The, the second uh, book in the New Testament, the, the second of the four Gospels uh, that we have here in our Bibles we 've been going through Mark and we are, we are in this section where jesus is uh, is on the path to the cross he 's been in uh, jerusalem he 's been ministering, he celebrated Passover with his disciples uh, last week we looked at jesus 's prayer in the garden, his prayer for God to take this cup away from him and um, And and then how uh, he submitted to God's will and how the the mob came, led by Judas, to arrest Jesus. And how as Jesus was arrested, his disciples all uh, fled, all fled and abandoned him. And so we'll pick up the narrative here in Mark 14, verse 53. And we'll read read it here through verse 72, so we'll read the rest of chapter 14. Uh, So follow along as I read, starting in Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore fault witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, all hearts are in your hands. All events are at your disposal. So set the seal of your almighty will upon the ministry of your word this morning. Let's see that is sown in the weakness of this messenger be raised in the power of your spirit for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, when I was uh, growing up, when I was in high school, uh, Monday nights were a special time in our family because Monday nights is when uh, my dad, my brother, and myself would gather around uh, the TV and we'd watch the show 24. Show 24, I don't know if you remember the show, this corner probably doesn't, um, right? Jim, thank you. Uh, 24 was the show, right? It was, it was about a counter-terrorist agent, Jack Bauer, one of the greatest names in TV history, right, Kiefer Sutherland? Um, Jack Bowery's a counter-terrorist agent, and every season, you know, the show was all about how he had to save the world from terrorists, keep the world from going to war, World War III, whatever. And, and the, the hook of the show was that uh, each episode happened in real time, right, over 24 hours each season. That's where the show got its name. It was a pretty obvious name, 24. Right, it happened in real time. And one of the cool things that the show would do to communicate that these events were happening in real time, these events were happening at the same time, is they would use a split screen. They would divide the screen in half and show some characters doing one thing and some characters over doing another thing over here, and they'd show the clock so you know, oh, okay, I get it. These things are all happening at the same moment. And I thought of that this week because as we get into this section, this text of Scripture, uh, Mark is using his own version of a split screen uh, to show us two different events that are happening at the same time. Mark starts off this passage by telling us uh, that Peter followed from a distance as Jesus was led into the courtyard of the high priest uh, by the mob who had arrested him. Mark he starts with this brief detail about Peter, uh, but then he moves to focus completely on the scene of Jesus uh, before the council before he then returns to Peter in verse 66. And so what Mark is doing here by kind of inserting Peter and then uh, forgetting about Peter and then coming back to Peter later is he's, he's doing kind of a scribal equivalent of a split screen. He wants us to see that these two scenes of Jesus being accused before the council, of Peter denying Jesus, these two scenes are happening simultaneously. They're happening at the same time. And it's important to see that because what's going on in this passage is that Jesus and Peter are both encountering hostility. They're both encountering hostility at the same time, but they have very different responses. And these different responses would have been really important uh, for Mark's original readers. Mark's original readers who were uh, themselves facing hostility and persecution from the Roman Empire. These, uh, These original readers of Mark, they were facing the same kind of threats that Jesus and Peter face in this passage, and so the the responses that we see, the contrasting responses of Jesus and Peter here, uh, they contain powerful encouragements and warning, both for Mark's original readers, but also for us today, because we too live in a hostile world. We live in a world that is hostile to Christ and his church, and that's not because of our particular cultural or political moment But because we live in the same fallen world, we have the same spiritual enemies that Mark's original readers did, that Peter and Jesus himself faced. We live in a world that's corrupted by sin, that's organized in rebellion against God. And so God's people, God's church will always face hostility for identifying with Christ. And as we face this hostility, as we come up against this persecution or this uh, hostility or abandonment or whatever it looks like, we might be tempted to ask questions like, is this faith really real? Is this faith really worth it? Is it worth the pain? Is it worth the rejection? Is it worth the hostility? As we face hostility and persecution in a fallen world, we might be tempted ourselves to deny Christ, to abandon him or his church, When we look at this text this morning, we see that in a hostile world we can hold fast by looking to Christ who remained faithful in the midst of hostility and heartbreak. That's our theme that we see in the text this morning, that in a hostile world we can hold fast by looking to Christ who remained faithful in the midst of hostility and heartbreak. And we see this in the text in the in the split screen in these two simultaneous scenes that contain hostile accusations on the one hand but then also heartbreaking denial on the other. And so we'll look at each of these scenes in the text first the scene of hostile accusations starting in verse 53 hostile accusations now, if you 've ever watched a you know a show like twenty four or other superhero movies or, or action movies there's often that scene right where the hero gets captured by the villain and, and taken into the villain's lair and there the villain monologues while the hero you know finds some ingenious way of getting out of the situation right we've all seen that we've all seen that parodied we've seen that you know in TV and movies and stuff and as we read uh, this account here of Jesus being captured of Jesus being led into the uh, the the courtyard of the high priest. We we see this happening to Jesus. We see a hero who's who's captured by his enemies, who's who's brought before them with threats and with hostility. And so as we read that, we might be thinking to ourselves, man, how is Jesus going to get out of this one? How is he going to get out of this one? But instead, what we actually see in the text is not a hero who is looking for a way to get out of the deadly peril, We actually see a hero who is leaning into the deadly peril. One who says and does the exact thing which sends him further into pain and suffering. Because by doing this, by giving himself to his enemies in weakness, Jesus is actually bringing about a greater rescue than anyone could have imagined or anticipated. Because after being arrested in the garden, Jesus, he, he stands in the, the courtyard of the high priest, he stands before the, the Sanhedrin. And this was the, the judicial uh, council that was made up of the Jewish scribes and the elders and the chief priests. This council, this body, this was the, the judicial, the formal judicial body of the Jewish people. This was the council that decided uh, legal questions that convicted criminals. And they had gathered together to, uh, to pass judgment on Jesus. But Mark tells us this wasn't a, a fair and impartial trial. Mark tells us that the council was seeking testimony to put Jesus to death. But they found none. This council, these Jewish leaders, they weren't sifting through the evidence trying to come up with a just verdict. No, they were actively looking for any reason, any basis to condemn Jesus to death. And so they bring many witnesses against Jesus. But these these witnesses, they they, they bear false witness. Their testimonies don't agree. And in the Jewish law of that time in courts, if your the testimony of your witnesses, if it contradicted itself, if your witnesses didn't agree, then their testimony wasn't admissible in court. And so we have this scene where seemingly frustrated by these conflicting, useless testimonies of these witnesses, the High Priest himself, who's presiding over these proceedings, he steps into the, the chaos, He steps into what's happening, and he asks Jesus directly. He says, "Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you?" He asks Jesus directly, and yet Jesus remains silent. And his silence echoes loudly in the passage. It echoes loudly in Scripture because the silence of Jesus here as he's standing before his enemies, those who are hostile towards him, it's his, his silence, it, it draws the reader's minds back to the book of Isaiah, back to the prophet Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 53. In this chapter, in Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, he is uh, prophesying, he is promising a coming servant of the Lord, a servant of the Lord who is going to come and suffer on behalf of God's people. And in Isaiah 53, verse 7, we read this about this suffering servant. Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, God's suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is one who is going to to come and suffer, who is going to face oppression and affliction, who is going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, for the sake of God's people. But as he does this, this suffering servant, he's not going to open his mouth. He's going to silently, faithfully submit to slaughter for the sake of God's people. And here in Mark 14, in verse 61, we see Jesus himself faced with oppression, with affliction and hostility. He's brought before an unjust court who want to condemn him, who want to slaughter him. And yet he remains silent in the face of their hostile accusations. And so in his silence, for reading the Bible, we can see what Jesus is doing is Jesus is showing us that he is this suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53. He is the one who has come to be slaughtered to serve and rescue God's people. And so when accused before the council of Jesus, he doesn't try and talk his way out of it. He doesn't open his mouth and plead for his life. No, he silently, faithfully submits in fulfillment of God's promise to bring a servant who is going to rescue his people by suffering, by being slaughtered like a lamb in their place. You see, Jesus, he doesn't try to escape the condemnation. He doesn't try to escape the oppression of this council because this is the whole reason that he's come. He's come to experience this affliction. He's come to submit to this hostility because he's come to serve and rescue his people by suffering in our place. And we see this as as Jesus' silence leads to another direct question from the high priest. The high priest once again turns to Jesus and asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? But here, when asked directly about his identity, Jesus, he doesn't remain silent. He does open his mouth, but he's not opening his mouth to talk his way out of it. He opens his mouth to actually give an answer that would ensure his condemnation. Because the high priest asked Jesus if he is the Christ. And this word Christ, it just means anointed one. It means the Messiah, God's anointed, promised king who is going to come and rescue and restore God's people. The, the priest asked him this because one of the main accusations against Jesus regarded statements that he made, statements that are recorded for us in John 2 about the temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the witnesses bring this up when Jesus is standing accused before the council. And in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus actually was talking about his body when he was talking about the temple here. But for his Jewish audience, this kind of claim of authority over the temple in Jerusalem to claim this kind of authority was to claim divinity this was a messianic claim a a divine claim a claim that only God himself could make and so the high priest asked Jesus directly incredulously he says are you the Christ are you this anointed one do you really think you're this promised king and Jesus responds to the question with a simple I am I am. And then he goes on to declare and say, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in this answer, Jesus isn't isn't just making this up on the spot. In this answer, Jesus is actually combining two key messianic passages from the Old Testament. I love, as we've been going through Mark, we've seen this again and again, how packed full of the Old Testament the New Testament is. How again and again, as we read it, we see allusions, we see references to what has come before in Scripture, how Christ is fulfilling these things. And so it's important for us to be reading our whole Bible so we can see these connections, see how Jesus is fulfilling what has come before. Because what he's doing in this answer, he's combining these two powerful Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 1. In which David declares, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, in the Old Testament, David was Israel's greatest king. He was a king after God's own heart. But in Psalm 110, David makes a promise that God is going to bring a greater king, a greater Lord, who's going to sit at God's right hand, who's going to be exalted in victory over his enemies. This is the promise here of Psalm 110. And, God, and Jesus combines this promise in Psalm 110 of a king who's exalted at the right hand of God over his enemies. He combines this with another messianic passage from the Old Testament. He combines it with Daniel chapter 7 in which the prophet Daniel, he has a vision of a son of man, a vision where with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of a messianic figure, this son of man who comes on the clouds with heaven, who's given an eternal dominion, an eternal rule and kingdom by God. And Jesus has drawn on this vision before in Mark, especially in the second half of the book. Jesus consistently refers to himself as the Son of Man. This has become Jesus' favorite uh, title for himself, favorite way of referring to himself. And so, in, in answer to the high priest's question, what Jesus does is he, he declares that he is David's Lord. He is the one who is going to come and be exalted at the right hand of God, who is going to rule over his enemies in victory. And he also declares that he is the exalted Son of Man who's going to be given complete and total eternal dominion. And that they are going to witness the coming of his everlasting kingdom. So Jesus makes a bold statement here. He's making bold divine claims about himself. And in doing so, in claiming to be this uh, Son of God, this anointed King, the Son of Man david's lord and saying these things jesus is saying enough for this jewish council for this judiciary body to condemn him for blasphemy jesus knows what he's doing here because the jewish belief was that the messiah would merely be a man be this this man this revolutionary figure but jesus is describing himself in both messianic and divine terms He's claiming authority, claiming glory for himself that only God can claim. And so the council, the high priest tears his garments. The council accuses him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. And so they condemn him to death. They condemn him to death. But there's a problem. Because at this time in, in Israel's history, they were being ruled over by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire reserved the right for themselves to carry out capital punishment, to carry out executions. And so the Jewish leaders, they couldn't just stone Jesus, which was the typical uh, punishment for blasphemy in that culture. Instead, they needed to appeal to the Roman government, to appeal to them to have Jesus executed by them. And so the council condemns Jesus and their condemnation meant that they were agreeing to hand him over to the Romans for execution. And so we will see in the coming weeks how this is carried out, what happens to Jesus, why he is, goes before Pilate, why he is crucified on a Roman cross. But before they do that, the, the council, also the Jewish leaders, they beat Jesus, they get the guards, they beat him, they mock him, they spit on him, they want to make a public example out of him. They blindfold him and they tell him to prophesy, to, to declare who it was that hit him, to use his divine power to prove he really is the Messiah. They humiliate Jesus. They beat Jesus. Jesus is faced with violent, unrelenting hostility in these verses. But in the midst of this hostility, in the midst of this violence, Jesus remains faithful. He willingly endures this suffering like a lamb sent to the slaughter. Like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 because he knows that it is only, not by escaping this suffering, it is only by enduring this suffering that he is going to ultimately be exalted in victory over his enemies. It is only by enduring this hostility and violence that he is going to be able to secure a glorious and eternal kingdom. And so for followers of Christ who ourselves might be facing hostility, whether it was in the first century or whether it's today, As we face our own hostility, when we see Jesus' faithfulness here, it should comfort us and strengthen us and humble us. Because in Christ, we see a God who knows what it's like to endure suffering, to endure hostility, to be mocked and beaten and rejected. We also see that God can actually use suffering. He can use hostility to carry out his plans, to fulfill his promises. Because all of this suffering, all of this hostility that Jesus is enduring, it was all for us. It was all for us. He came and endured ultimate hostility for us. Not just the hostility of the council, but the hostility of the cross. The hostility of the cross where he went and bore the ultimate condemnation, the judgment, the wrath, the hostility of God for sin, for our rebellion, for all of the ways that we have rebelled against God or tried to replace him. In our hearts, Jesus endured this for us, and so it is only by trusting in Christ who endured ultimate hostility for us. It's only by trusting in Him that we can be freed from the hostility that we deserve, that we can be brought into the eternal kingdom that Christ secured through His suffering. And so, no matter what hostility, what hardship, what persecution we're facing, If we are in Christ, if we look to him, if we trust him, then we know that in him we have a life, we have a security, we have a destiny that no hostility, no hardship can take away from us. In Christ we have a destiny beyond defeat. We have a hope beyond hostility. And that hope is available to us even in the midst of failure and heartbreak. And we see that as we move into the next scene here, starting in verse 66, a scene of heartbreaking denial. So first we have hostile accusations, secondly, heartbreaking denial. Because few things in life are harder to deal with than fear and failure. And in seven verses here, we see uh, Peter experience both. He experiences both fear and failure. Because Peter, Mark tells us, followed Jesus from a distance as they brought him into the courtyard, as they accused him before the council. And while all this was going on, Peter was over with the guards by the fire, warming himself, trying to keep a low profile. But as Peter is warming himself by the fire, a servant girl looks at him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. She recognizes Peter. She identifies Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. But fearing for his life, Peter, he denies it. He says to to the servant girl, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Peter then fearfully leaves the fire and heads to to the gateway to the courtyard, and as he does so, the rooster crows for the first time. But the servant girl, she sees him again, and this time she lets other people know. She alerts some of the bystanders, and, and she tells them that this man is one of them. This man, Peter, is one of Jesus' disciples. But again, for a second time, Peter denies it. And then a the third time, the bystanders come and they accuse Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They recognize Peter's race, they recognize he's from Galilee, and so he must be with Jesus, who's being arrested and accused. And in response to this third accusation, Peter, he takes his denial to a whole new tragic level. Because Mark tells us that Peter, he invokes a curse on himself. He swears, he basically calls down God's judgment on himself if he's lying. And then he denies Jesus. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It's heartbreaking because out of desperate fear, Peter denies Jesus three times. And with the third denial, he actually invokes a solemn curse. He invokes judgment upon himself. That's how deep his denial goes. This disciple who once boldly promised that he would never abandon Jesus, now he comes and he completely and solemnly denies Jesus. And then the rooster crows a second time, fulfilling Christ's promise back in verse 30. That before the rooster crows twice, Peter would deny Jesus three times. And so the shock of, of seeing Jesus arrested, the fear of sharing in his faith, in his fate, it, it led Peter into complete and utter failure as a disciple. Led him to complete and utter failure as a disciple. When faced with the hostility of the world, Peter is completely faithless to his master. And when Peter realizes this, when the rooster crows a second time, he breaks down and he weeps. He weeps. And when we look here at Peter's failure, as heartbreaking as it is, I think there is both a a warning and an encouragement for us today. A warning and an encouragement. Because as the commentator William Lane points out, the contrast between Peter's bold promises to stand by Jesus and then his complete denial of Jesus... this this contrast, it contains for us a warning. It contained a warning that uh, Mark's original readers needed and a warning that we need today. Because like Peter, Mark's original readers, they they faced hostility and persecution for identifying with Jesus. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire who wanted to stamp out what uh, they saw as a new Jewish sect. And so Christians at that time were being radically persecuted for their faith. And so Peter's fear in these verses would have been very real to these original readers. And as Lane observes, Peter's failure would have contained a sober warning for them that uh, even the boldest, most confident disciples can fail in the face of fear and hostility. That bold confidence in our own strength is not enough to hold up, to stand up against the hostility of the world. Peter was confident in his commitment, confident in his boldness and his courage, and yet he failed when it came time to stand with Jesus. And the same is true for us. Trust in our own spiritual strength, trust in our own moral effort, our own religious commitment. It will not lead us to hold fast in the face of hostility. Trust in another person, in a political institution, in a cultural movement. These things will not be enough to secure to secure us as we face persecution and hostility in the world. When identifying with Christ, when proclaiming Christ carries a real cost, carries a real risk, trusting in our own boldness, our own strength, it will easily lead us into failure, into failure. But there's also an encouragement here in Peter's failure and his denial. The mere fact that this account is even included in Mark's gospel is actually encouraging to us. Because think about this Mark wasn't at the fire with Peter, the the other disciples weren't there. They didn't see the servant girl notice Peter. Mark didn't see this whole scene. He didn't see this conversation. He didn't witness Peter's denial. So, how did Mark know about this scene? How did Mark know about Peter's denial and failure? when he was writing his gospel about 30 years after the resurrection. I don't, I don't know about you, but if, if, if this, something like this happened to me, if this kind of failure happened to me and nobody I knew was around, I wouldn't want to tell anybody. I wouldn't want anybody to know about it. So then imagine 30 years later, a book of my life comes out and it's in there. How would it get in there? How would people know? Well, the, the most likely reason is that I told somebody is that I let somebody know about my own failure because it was important for them to know. It was important for them to know in the story. And in a similar way, most scholars believe that Mark's gospel is actually a recording of Peter's eyewitness accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And if Peter is Mark's main source, then it is most likely that Peter himself is the one telling us about his failure, about his denial here. That's important to see because think about this. If you were trying to make up a religion in the first century, if you were trying to start your own religious movement in which you were going to be a main key leader, you probably wouldn't include in the founding documents of that movement an account about how you failed at the key moment in the story, right? In that culture, that culture was built around honor and shame. And so if you're trying to come up with a religion, trying to lead a religion that would seem honorable in that culture, you wouldn't include a story about your shameful failure and still expect to be a leader in that movement. And yet this is what Peter does. This is what Mark records. And the only reason you would do that culturally is if that's actually what happened, is if this is how the events really played out. And it's important for people to know these events because these events are part of a greater story of redemption and restoration that you need to know about. See, the fact that Peter is even in a position to give his account to Mark, to be an eyewitness to these things, the fact that he was seen as a respected witness and leader in the early church when Mark's gospel was written, this tells us that Peter's story does not end with his tears in verse 72. Verse 72. And indeed, if we flip just a few pages forward to Mark 16, verse 7, when uh, the woman arrive at the empty tomb of Jesus, and an angel appears and tells them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is what the angel says to the woman after the resurrection. And when we, when we read that, did you notice uh, the angel's instructions how Peter's included? He's included in the command for the women to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Peter's included, but he's, he's included separately from the other disciples because he's in this state of failure. He's in the state of failure here. He's included, but he's also still included, right? He's still part of this he's still here. He's still in the story. Jesus still promises to include him as he meets his disciples in Galilee. And so Jesus, I'm just catching up on my notes here. One of the pages got loose. Uh, Jesus is including Peter graciously. And as you move forward, Mark doesn't record this in his gospel, but if you go to the end of the book of John, to John chapter one, we see a scene where uh, Jesus, he comes to Peter and he asks Peter three times after the resurrection. He says, hey, "He says, Peter, do you love me?" And Peter responds three times, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you." And then Jesus tells Peter three times. He says, "Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Feed my sheep." And so, at the end of John's Gospel, Peter is not only completely restored as a disciple; he is commissioned by Christ to go and shepherd his people to go and care and lead the church, to care for the flock. And so Peter is included. He is commissioned by Jesus in the early church, commissioned to do ministry, not because of Peter's strength, not because he had it all figured out, but because of the grace and the tenderness and the mercy of Christ. And then if we keep going in the narrative in the New Testament, we go to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2, And there the Holy Spirit, it falls on the disciples. And then Peter stands before a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem. And there in Acts 2, he gives what we might call the first Christian sermon. The first Christian sermon where Peter explains the resurrection. He explains what has happened here in Jerusalem in Christ. And how does Peter conclude this sermon? How does he conclude this first Christian sermon? Well, we see in in Acts 2, In Acts 2, starting in verse 32, Peter says this at the end of his sermon. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand Until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound familiar? Because what Peter does here is at the end of his sermon in Acts 2, he ends his sermon the same way that Jesus answered the high priest in Mark 14. He answers by quoting Psalm 110. By quoting Psalm 110, by declaring that Jesus has risen. He has been exalted at the right hand of God in victory over his enemies. What Peter says in his sermon is that the first part of Jesus' promise to the high priest has been fulfilled. That yes, Jesus has suffered and died and been buried, but also he's risen again. He's risen again. He's been exalted in victory. He sits at the right hand of God, ruling over his enemies. And this is what made all the difference in Peter's life. This is what made the difference. Because we ask the question, how can this guy, Peter, who when approached by one servant girl and confronted by one servant girl, just caves and completely denies Jesus? How can he go from doing that to standing before a crowd of thousands of people and publicly declaring that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ? How does that change happen? Well, it happens because Peter witnessed the resurrection. Because he came to know the life, the life that Christ brought out of death. He came to see the victory and the exaltation of Christ. And he came to trust in Christ's power, not his own. He came to trust in Christ's victory, not his own, to see that there is, that in Christ, in his resurrection, there is forgiveness and restoration available, even for those who fail in weakness even for those who have utterly screwed things up. Peter has come to know that. He's been given the Holy Spirit, and so he's used by God to lead 3,000 people to faith on the day of Pentecost. Who else but God could do that? Could do that. That's the trajectory from being scared of one servant girl to standing and proclaiming the gospel before 3,000 people. And Peter also knew, he also knew that there was a certain hope that the second half of Jesus' promise in Mark 14 would come to pass, that Jesus, the exalted Son of Man, will one day return on the clouds of heaven, and we will see his glory as he ushers in his eternal kingdom. Peter knew that this was certain because Jesus rose from the dead, and the risen Christ himself restored him, brought him a life beyond death brought him a forgiveness beyond failure brought him a hope beyond hostility and we have that same hope ourselves in christ you know as i was i was thinking about that this week the the show 24 one of the things that made it so effective one of the things that made it so uh, exciting was that most episodes most seasons ended on these crazy cliffhangers These crazy cliffhangers where you're left wondering what is going to happen. What is Jack going to do next? What's going to be the next piece in the story? When we look at the story of the Bible, when we look at the message of the gospel, we see that there is no cliffhanger in Christianity. We are not left wondering what is going to happen next. We may be waiting for the end to come, but we are not wondering. The end result is not in doubt. Because we know that Christ has the victory. He is risen and reigning and exalted at the right hand of God and one day he will return to usher in his perfect eternal kingdom and so whatever hostilities we're facing whatever persecutions or rejections or hardships come along with identifying with Christ we can look to him in faith and we can find in him a hope beyond hostility. A destiny beyond death that's not based on our own power and our own strength and our own achievements and our own commitment. It's based on who Jesus is and what he has done. It's based on his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his victory. And so in him we can be secure in the face of a hostile world. In him we can be bold, we can proclaim before the world that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, the suffering servant, the son of man who is led like a lamb to the slaughter, he is risen and reigning, and in him we have a hope that is untouchable. We have a life that is undefeatable, and so let that be our hope. Let that be what holds us fast as we face hostility, as we face persecution, as we face A world organized in rebellion and opposition to God. So, is that your hope this morning? Do you have this hope beyond hostility in Christ who faced ultimate hostility for us, who was faithful in the midst of hostility and heartbreak for us? Do you have this hope? This hope that we've sung of this morning that no power of hell, no scheme of man, can ever pluck me from his hand. So till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I'll stand. Please pray with me. gracious Father, we thank you this morning for this reminder of this hope we have beyond hostility, of this life we have beyond death, of uh, the way you worked in Peter's life, you worked to restore him, even from failure and use him even in his weaknesses. And Lord we thank you for the reminder of the hope that we have in Christ, who faced ultimate hostility for us, who brought life and victory on the other side, who brings us an eternal destiny, an eternal security that cannot be shaken. And so Lord, help us to go from here, boldly submitting to your will your sovereignty and your victory as we share the good news of Christ with others as we proclaim him even in the face of persecution and hardship Lord help us to be bold not in ourselves but to be bold in Christ we pray in his name amen amen well we'll close by standing and singing one final song together so please stand and sing with us Again, for being here, be sure to uh, to greet AJ and his traveling band of merry men. I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, And women. Uh, And and if you have any questions about anything that's been shared, if you'd like to discuss any of this further, I'd love to talk with you. Again, we want to invite you to come back tonight at 6:30 for some time of Q&A and um, and fellowship together. Uh, But as we go from here, let's uh, hear one final word from from Peter himself in 1 Peter 5. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.